Well, good morning, City Church. Let's try that again. Good morning, City Church. He is risen. He is risen. Happy Easter. Happy, res- happy Resurrection Sunday morning. It is so good to have you here. I want to say at the outset, I know that we have a lot of guests here this morning. We had a lot of guests in our first service as well, and just want to welcome you to City Church. And uh, Leah, let's give our guests a warm welcome to City Church. Good to have you. And I know that some of you were invited by someone, and um, you've been watching her recently, and when she invited you to church, you thought, wow, perfect opportunity to sit close to her. <laughs> and if the pastor would only say, let's join hands in prayer, <laughs> then you would feel God's presence in a mighty way. <laughs> but it's good to have you here this morning. Again, if you're our guests, uh, welcome What I am keenly aware of, because my family did not grow up going to church. I can remember the first service that we went to as a family. I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. We lived kind of that farming life, a little bit isolated, and we were invited to church. And uh, I can remember going to church for the very first time, and the pastor got up front, started reading scripture, and said, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter so-and-so. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Then he preached a message that he was pretty excited about, and I was happy for that. But uh, I had no clue what the story was. And I believe in my own heart of hearts that Easter is too important of a story that we would not understand what Easter is. So this morning's sermon is going to be a little bit different in that what I want to do is explain to us what is the resurrection, what is Easter all about? And so just kind of get that sense this morning that that is where we are headed. Now in line with that, we're going to now read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 verses 1 through 10. And so the the text will be up on the large screen, I'm going to read it from my Bible I'd like for you to read along with me, and uh, let's get into the story. Here's what the Bible tells us. The heading is, Jesus is risen. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. says, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. How would you like to be known as the other Mary? There's one everyone knows. And you're the other Mary. Reading on. The Bible tells us that there was a violent earthquake. That's no surprise. There was a violent earthquake when Jesus died. We also know that there's extra biblical record that there was an earthquake that was so violent in Jerusalem right around the time that Jesus died that the steps in and around the Temple Mount moved eight inches. Now, what you have to know is Jerusalem's literally built on a rock. It was a violent earthquake. That happened when he died. The Gospel of Matthew uploads that to us. Right now, we hear about an aftershock. It says, there was a violent earthquake, for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going back the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. 
This stone would take several men to move. And I love the picture that the African-American preacher brings where he talks about the angel from the Lord came down, flicked it with his pinky finger. The tomb, the roll that rolled, the stone that rolled in front of the tomb spun like a bottle cap, flopped on its side, and when the Marys looked up, he was chilling on it. I like that vision. Let's go on. It says this about the angel. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. It's a testimony to the purity and the holiness of God. And the guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The same African-American preacher put it this way. They were so fearful, they messed their pampers and fainted. I like that vision as well. Reading on, it said, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. That's the most quoted command in all of Scripture. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, but I know that you are looking for Jesus. He was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. Two opposite emotions. Afraid yet filled with joy, ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Jewish people only worship God and no one else. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. As I stated at the outset, the purpose for this sermon is simple. I would like for us to understand the resurrection. The idea of Jesus being raised from the dead. The whole idea of Easter. And I don't want to bum you out, but Easter is more important than Christmas. Do you know only two of the Gospels even upload to us the story of the birth of Jesus, but all four Gospels, all four, talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. All four. And one of the Gospels, over half of the entire Gospel, is dedicated to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, here we are. Easter Sunday morning, 2018. We're going to take a fresh look again at the resurrection of Christ. Where to begin? Let's begin with the central figure in the story. His name is what? Jesus Christ. Has, have any of you ever heard of him? Raise your hand. Yeah, heard of him. Here's what's amazing. Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. My name is Pete Hartwig. I never liked my last name. When I became a U.S. citizen, I was born in Canada. When I became a U.S. citizen, I wanted to change it to heart. I wanted to get rid of the wig. That is a joke. And my dad said, if you can afford the attorney, 
it's all yours. I was 12. Wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so the idea is, is Jesus Christ. But here's what's incredible. My name, Peter, literally means rock. Now, you can tell by looking at me physically that that's true. <laughs> but the idea is for Jesus, his name, name literally means, in Hebrew, it's Yeshua, and it literally is a compound word that means God saves. That's what it means. It's also utilized in the Older Testament as the name Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus are technically the same name, but it's a hyphenated word in the original language, slightly morphed, and the name Jesus literally means God saves. Christ is actually a position. Christ is literally a position. The word Christ comes from the Hebrew word for Messiah. And what's amazing is, is in the Older Testament, when every, every time Israel got in trouble, the prophets, those were men who would speak for God to the people of Israel, the prophets would talk about that there would come a day. There would come a day when a king would sit on David's throne. And when that king was brought into his kingship, as the Alleluia Chorus says, his kingdom would never end, and he would reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. How many of you have ever heard the Alleluia Chorus? Handel's Messiah. That's what it's about. That's the Older Testament scripture where Handel writes about this king that the Bible foretold. And when that king would sit on David's throne, man, if you thought David was something, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till this king takes over and sits on David's throne. But he's also a Messiah. And a Messiah had the sense in Jewish culture from the Older Testament that this king also would have God with him in a unique way like no king had ever had been before and God would be with this. This guy would literally be known as the son of God. And so at the time of Jesus, every Jewish person would pray every day that God would bring the Messiah that God would bring that king who would sit on David's throne. And why? Because all the Jews during the time of Jesus are being crushed by the Roman Empire. And when you're in trouble, people of faith turn to God. Even some people who aren't people of faith turn to God. I've worked with college students for 30 years. When I was a chaplain at Princeton, I can remember how many times Students didn't even want to see me until exams. Then <laughs> all of a sudden, they didn't ask me just to pray with them. They asked me to pray for miracles <laughs> on their exams. So that God would recall to memory things they'd never studied, <laughs> never looked at. That they would remember classes they never sat through. And if they did, they never paid attention. You know what's stunning? That was even before the internet really got traction. Can you imagine? But here we are. The Israelite people are now turning to God and they're crying out because Rome is crushing them, killing their men, taking their women, and taxing them to death. Well, Jesus Christ, God saves, He delivers, He sets His people free. Not only that, 
Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God is with. Now, the other people that come into play in our story are Herod, Pilate, and some, not all, some of the Jewish religious leaders. And if you were to read the story in the Gospels, you would meet these three people. Now, Herod, he's the big guy. People would have tweeted about him a lot, a lot. He would be in the news a lot because he's nuts, like legitimately crazy. Now, he comes by it honestly, and he didn't come to be the king of the Jews honestly. Really, it was all nepotism. His father was Herod the Great. His father was this real friendly chap who thought that two of Herod, the one we're going to read about or we're talking about with Jesus, his name's Herod Antipas, but Herod the Great got nervous about a couple of Herod's brothers, so he killed them. Also, his wife, the one that he loved the most, he thought she was trying to conspire against him, so he killed her too. He's a friendly guy. And when he exited the throne, he puts his son, Herod Antipas, as king of the Jews. Herod is a power-thirsty, power-hungry, self-centered person. Next, there's Pilate. He's known as Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate and Herod don't like each other. But Pilate has also got some governing authority in the area. But he's interesting. History tells us and the Bible uploads to us that he has no spine at all. He's the type of the leader that just wants to please the people. So if a certain group comes in and begins to talk to him, he'll go, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. They exit, the next group comes in. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. And you can see this in the time when Jesus is being tried in front of him. The Jews show up to Pilate. Those religious leaders show up to Pilate. And they say, look, here's Jesus. We need to kill him. And Pilate said, but why? What crime has he done? And then Pilate takes and interviews Jesus, and he comes out of that interview and says, this guy hasn't done a thing. Why is he even here? Not only that, Pilate's wife appears to him and says, Pilate, I had a dream, and in the dream I saw this guy. Don't touch him. There's something unique about this guy that's in front of you. Do not touch him. And he looks at his wife and says, sure. Then he walks out of that, and the Jews show up again. And then he vacillates. The idea is, is Pilate is all about getting the approval of people. He just wants to do what the largest majority wants him to do. And so what he says to the Jews is this, I find no fault in him. And then he tries something else. He said, well, you know, and he did this to prove his authority over the Jews and over the common law. He basically says this, but look, once a year I can let a guy free that's deserving of death, and so why don't we have a vote? So what he does is he puts out a hooligan by the name of Barabbas. And Barabbas is known to be a ruthless, brutal, evil soul, and then he puts out Jesus. Well, he's totally convinced that the crowd's going to pick Jesus. But it says that the religious leaders in the crowd begin to chant, Barabbas, 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 and they swell the crowd into a frenzy. And all of a sudden, Pilate is stuck. 
He didn't have the spine to make the decision. And so now the crowd has made the decision. So he takes a little bit of dove soap, he puts it on his hands, and he washes them. And he says to the Jews, you can have them, but I wash my hands of what you're getting ready to do. Pilate and Herod don't like each other. The next group would be the Jewish leaders. Now, the Jewish leaders are an interesting group. They're the type that hated the Romans. They could not stand Herod. They could not stand Pilate. But they also had a problem with Jesus. And that is, is that many people had believed and had come to believe he was the Messiah. Not only this, but Jesus had a way of getting in their religious grill. Jesus would confront them publicly. They did not like him. But you see, they loved the religious form. They loved the religious rules. And so isn't it fascinating that Herod loved power and authority? Pilate couldn't make a decision for himself. He just loved to be popular. And the religious leaders loved all the rules. And before you get too harsh on them, there's a little bit of each of that in all of us. All of us have it. What do we do when Jesus is resurrected from the dead? What am I going to do with it? Well, the truth of it is, is if I have power and authority, what if following Jesus? Or we're like Pontius Pilate where we like everyone to like us, but what about Jesus? And then the religious leaders, man, they were into the rules. They loved the form and all of that stuff. And even though Jesus said to them, all of your rules make it 50 times harder for people to find God, They still wanted to stick with their rules. All of us have a little bit of each of those in us. The other thing we need to understand is that it's Passover. When Jesus is crucified, it is Passover. And this is the religious holiday that celebrates and commemorates the deliverance of God, of the people of Israel from their slavery and their bondage to Egypt. And it's the top feast of the seven feasts of the Jewish culture. It's the primary one because if God had not set his people free from bondage to Egypt, there wouldn't be an Israelite people. So what God did was he had raised up this guy named Moses. For those of you who are older, Moses' name was not Charlton Heston. It truly is Moses. And, they, and God raised up Moses, did signs and wonders, and before you know it, the children of Israel move through the sea, and when they go through the sea, God miraculously preserves them and wipes out all the Egyptian charioteers. And you see, every year, on the command of God, for thousands of years, and it's going to happen this week, where Jews gather together and they commemorate the deliverance of God from their slavery and their dominance under Egypt. So picture this. Right now, it's Passover. It's Passover, and by the call of God, every male that's a Jew that can get to Jerusalem must go to Jerusalem to eat the feast in the holy city. And so the city of Jerusalem swells in population to 20 times its normal population. And the Jewish people are there. They're excited about the feast. But here's the problem. They're also praying for the Messiah to come. 
Because if you're at a feast that commemorates God raising up Moses to deliver you, and he has promised a king to sit on David's throne that will overthrow the Roman Empire, then the height of that frenzy is during the Passover. So all of the Jews during the time of Jesus are crying out to God, raise up a leader. God, raise up a leader so that we can dominate these Romans. And so it's a very nervous time for Herod, and it's a nervous time for Pilate. They have to answer to Rome, but it's an awesome time for the Jewish leaders because throughout this week, they have Herod on his heels and they have Pilate on his heels because there's so many Jewish people and they're excited. It's their time to move forward and to pray. But then there's a problem. You know the guy Jesus they don't like? Can't stand him. He's confronted them publicly. All of a sudden, the city of Jerusalem begins to pulse with a cheer, and the cheer is Hosanna, Hosanna, which is a cheer that you give to a king who's getting ready to deliver his people, and Hosanna means God saves, God delivers, and all of the religious leaders can hear this frenzy beginning to build, and they run to the wall of Jerusalem, and they look over the edge. What do they see? They see Jesus' triumphal entry. But what's shocking is that people are putting palm branches in front of them. They're declaring that he is the king. He truly is their king. And the religious leaders are madder than ever. But Jesus rides into the city on a donkey. You know what that means? He's a king that comes in peace. In that culture, if a king enters a city, he comes in peace. If he comes in on a stallion, he comes in to make war. Jesus comes in not only on a donkey, but on the foal of a donkey, and all of the city is stirred. So the religious leaders, they go to Herod and to Pilate. They can't take it anymore. We need to kill him. And isn't it amazing that the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend? And all of these people, Herod, Pilate, and the religious leaders who could not stand each other, now come together and they join in the chorus, kill him. The problem is he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. So the Jews bring in false witnesses and they pay them to lie about Jesus. And he is condemned to death. That brings us to the cross. The cross is so painful and so torturous that the Greeks came up with a new word for it. Excruciating. Excruciating literally means out of the crucifixion. It was so painful, there was no word in literature that was there to describe the agony that men experienced while they were on the cross. And oh, by the way, it was illegal for any Roman citizen to be crucified. It was illegal. Only non-Romans could be executed this way. But you know, as painful as the cross was, that was not the worst part. 
And what we have to understand is, is that crucifixion is not just the cross. Crucifixion is everything Rome would do to you from the moment you were announced as guilty all the way up to being executed on the cross. All of that was known by them as being the crucifixion. It's not just the cross. As painful as it is, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 gives us a window into the worst part of crucifixion. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the what? The cross, scorning its pain. No. Scorning its what? Shame. Let me explain something to you carefully. Shame is more devastating than pain. Have you ever experienced shame? Shame because of what you have done. Shame because of what's been done to you. Shame can cripple the soul. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus is on the cross, what he had to persevere through was not the pain, the physical pain. No, it was the shame. So here Jesus is. He's on the cross. And when Jesus is on the cross, there's shame in being on the cross. What we need to understand is how you died spoke about your life. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross says something about him to everyone who's watching. It's a shameful way to die. But also know this, that the shame that Jesus experiences goes much deeper. You see the cross... You're naked. You know all of those sanitized paintings or statues of Jesus on the cross where he has the loincloth? Not true. Think of the shame of Jesus. Think about Jesus who when he moves towards being tried and found guilty, the guy that's his most boisterous follower, Peter, is there at his sentencing and Peter says nothing. As a matter of fact, imagine the shame of Jesus in that his closest follower, his most energetic, boisterous follower, the night that Jesus is found guilty, is warming himself by a fire barrel. He's within earshot of Jesus and what is happening. And someone turns to the apostle Peter over the fire barrel and says to him, you were with him too. Peter says, no, I wasn't. Then someone else walks up and says, I know you were with him. I can tell by your accent you are a Galilean and you were with Jesus. You know, oh, no, 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 never knew him. And then the final time, to prove his point, Peter calls down curses. And although the Bible does not say it, there's a clear belief that the curses he called down on were to be on Jesus. And one of the gospels tells us that at that moment the rooster crows and Jesus turns in the crowd and he locks eyes with Peter. That's what the gospel tells us. And when the rooster crows, it means that no one can come to Jesus' defense. Do you know in the Roman court, if you were found guilty of death, anyone could come testify on your behalf until the rooster crows. And there was Peter. At any time, he could have stepped out and defended Jesus. But once the rooster crows... It's over. The shame of the cross 
Jesus has now been betrayed by his closest friend. Not only that, just a few hours earlier, it was the triumphal entry. Everyone was cheering for Jesus, and he went from hero to zero in a day. He lost a public election to a hoodlum, Barabbas. Not only this, Jesus became a political pawn between Herod and Pilate, and the gospel tells us that in order to humiliate Jesus, Herod and Pilate bounced Jesus back and forth across the city of Jerusalem. One would torture him for a little bit, and then they would bow before the other one's title and send him across the city in the middle of night. That one would torture him for a little bit. That one would bow to the, to the la- and then send him back. And here's what the Bible says. It's a chilling verse. It says that Herod and Pilate became friends in their execution of Jesus. Not only this, but the religious leaders that you would think would come to his defense were the ones that said he needed to die. He's naked on the cross. We also know that the torture of Jesus had a distinct pervertedness to it. It was perverse. Not only this, over Jesus' head, in the three spoken languages of the day, on a little placard, it said, King of the Jews. And as the people walked by, they jeered at him on the cross because he had saved so many. He had healed so many. He had fed so many. And they said to him, you've saved others. Now save yourself. And if we can stomach this, the cross is Jesus' throne and the crown of thorns is his crown. Wow. He's your king, Israel. Here's your king. The shame, the rejection. But the worst part is this. All of the gospels tell us that Jesus says seven things from the cross. But the one that's repeated in all of the Gospels is this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had lived in complete unity with his heavenly Father. It had never been broken. Jesus had never experienced sin. He lived in 100% sweet communion with his heavenly Father his entire life. And while he's on the cross, all of a sudden, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the most famous theologian ever, the Apostle Paul, tells us why. Here's why. Because God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, while he is on the cross, takes all of the sin takes all of the wrath of the enemy of our soul. Jesus on the cross, everything comes against him. And when that stuff moves on him and begins to overtake him, his heavenly Father begins to move away. And Jesus feels the pain for the very first time of what it's like to move towards being separated from God. Now, here's what we need to know, that we should not get all freaked out. Here's why. 
The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus, Jesus told his disciples that this would happen. He explained to them that he would have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things by the religious leaders and by the Romans, and then he must be killed, and on the what day? Third day, be raised to life. Jesus had been telling anyone that would listen that this would happen. But much like you and me, we have what's called selective hearing. So would his disciples. Do you know what selective hearing is? How many of you are married? You know what selective hearing is. And yet Jesus had explained to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me, but on the third day, I will be raised to life. But the reality of it is, no one remembered. You see, Jesus is dead. The Bible leaves no mistake that Jesus is killed, that crucifixion kills Jesus. The Bible makes no mistake. And the scripture tells us so clearly that the thieves on either side of Jesus were still alive, but Jesus was already dead when the Roman soldiers came to him. And to make sure, the centurion inserts a spear up under his ribcage, scrambles his heart, pulls out the spear, and blood and water gush out of his side. Jesus said, this is what would happen, that he would be dead. Jesus died. Everyone left. Everyone cut bait and left. And so when Jesus died, what would be accurate is to say to Rome, you have won. To tell Pontius Pilate and Herod that killing Jesus was a good idea. To tell the enemy of our soul that sin now wins. To tell brutality and violence that it always wins in the end. And all the love stuff that Jesus was teaching about and trying to live was pointless. Jesus is dead. And if Jesus is dead, then tell all the power brokers, you were right, you were right. Dominating people is the best way to do it. Tell them that power wins. If Jesus is dead and he is, then tell Judas Iscariot it was the most timely silver he's ever made. And betraying Jesus was a wise move. And oh, by the way, tell Peter that those curses that he called down on Christ came true. And you know all the love stuff that Jesus taught and modeled? Forget about it. He's dead. Shut the door, turn off the lights, party over, go home. And everyone did. Everyone. Everyone. And that's where we pick up our reading. The Bible says that on the next day was the Sabbath, and following that day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Enter in two more players in the story. They step into the story, but we've met them before. You see, they were also at the crucifixion. It tells us plainly that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there watching. 
Not only that, they followed Jesus' body when a wealthy dude by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, along with another wealthy, powerful guy by the name of Nicodemus, they went to Pilate and they requested Jesus' body. He said, sure, you can have it. They take his body off the cross and they stuck his body in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And these two women, it tells us clearly, in the Gospel of Matthew, followed his body and they saw where they buried him. The next day, at sunup, these two women are sitting on a park bench across from the tomb. But what Matthew does not tell you, they showed up with spices. They showed up to have finished the embalming process of his body. They cared about him. But you see, the Messiah would never die. And he died. It's over. Lights out. Curtains. Go home. And they're sitting on the park bench, and they've got spices sitting between them. Remember who Mary Migdal is. Her name's Mary Magdalene, but really it means Mary of Migdal. She had been possessed by demons. The church fathers tell us that she was a prostitute. She met Christ. He cast out the demons and transformed her life. What about the other Mary? She's the other Mary. They're there, and they know he's dead. And then what happens next is shocking. The Bible says, the angel says to the women, do not be afraid. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said. And no one believed him. Not even the two women. They showed up to embalm his body. They could count... One, two, three. Third day, they should be on the park bench waiting and watching for his resurrection, but they were not. The most faithful disciples Jesus ever had, these two women are sitting on a park bench expecting a dead body. What happens next is profound. The Bible says that the angel tells them to go tell his disciples, and it says, and we read it at the beginning of the service, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with what? They were afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Those are opposite end emotions. And since at times we struggle to understand emotions and we need emojis to help us, I've put some on the screen. This is what? Fear. This is what? Joy. You do not experience both of those at once. You either have or, but not both. They did. Stunning. They had two emotions that are polar opposites, and it's because Jesus is raised from the dead. Then they meet Jesus. And here's what the Bible tells us. It says, suddenly Jesus met them. They're exiting the garden. And as they're exiting that cemetery, they're moving towards the disciples. And the Bible says that they met Jesus. Greetings, he said. They came and clasped his feet and worshiped him. And here's what you need to know. The gospel is clear that Mary Magdalene had washed Jesus' feet before. 
but she had washed them with her tears and with perfume that had cost her a year's wages, and she had wiped his feet with her hair as a form of worship, and now she is there, and she's clasped his feet, she's grasped his feet, and she's worshiping him, and she looks down, and there's a hole in his foot. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus pierced him, marred him. The crucifixion of Jesus scarred him. And here she is, grabbing his feet and worshiping him. Listen, there are times where I read Bible stories and I have advice for God. So do you. I have advice for God on my own life at times. But listen, my advice for God is that he just blew the story. You know what my advice would have been? It's marketing advice. Jesus, if the resurrection is the most important thing in all of the spirit realm, if your son going through death, going through hell, going through sin and being raised on the third day, if that is true, then God, you missed a great opportunity for some amazing marketing. You missed one. Here's what you missed, God. If I were you, the birth story and the angels and the stars are all the lights in the sky and all the fireworks that announced Jesus' birth, it would have been nothing compared to the fanfare of the resurrection. God, listen, here's what I would have done. I'd have had Jesus come out of that tomb, and let me think, I would have had Herod and Pontius Pilate sitting on that bench. That's what I would have done. Then, I would have had all of heaven open. I would have had every angel that was cheering in heaven because death is now conquered. Sin has been defeated through his resurrection. I would have peeled back heaven and let every angel come down with trumpets and with power and with authority and announce it. Not God. God had two women sitting on a park bench and they believed it would never happen. What a missed marketing opportunity. Unless, unless the resurrection is so powerful, you will never be able to stop it. Unless the resurrection has a power all its own that it will get so much traction that even when two women are those that carry the news, this story cannot be held down. Do you know in Jesus' day, women couldn't even testify in the court of law unless their husbands stood next to them. God has the resurrection appeared to women, and they can't even testify about it in the court of law. And if you know what happens in the gospel, they leave and they go tell the disciples. And just like true men, the disciples don't believe the women, so they go check for the empty tomb for themselves. How many men know exactly what I'm talking about? They don't even believe the women. Oh, they're hysterical. Oh, they're this. God, you missed an opportunity unless the resurrection is a force that everyone will have to reckon with 
at some point and some time. You know what's so stunning about the resurrection is how underplayed it truly is. It is so underplayed and understated that it's shocking. But here's what I know. I know this, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And it's true. And if it's true, it's going to revolutionize human lives because the cross lets me know that Jesus paid the price for my sin. The cross lets me know that by his blood my sin is covered. But the resurrection tells me there's power to live differently. If Jesus is raised from the dead, not only are my sins forgiven, but in him I can live a different life than what I'm living before I met him. And that famous theologian said this, but God demonstrated his own love for us that while Pete Hartwig was out there still sinning, Christ died for us. You see, the resurrection proves everything. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ has defeated death. And if that's true, there's a new way to live. You can live a new life in him. If you have shame and guilt, purpose is something that alludes to. If you feel like you're Herod and Pilate and you're about wealth or power or you're about all of those things, just know this, that Jesus will take you just the way you are. The writer of the gospel that we just read was a tax collector. He was hated by Jews because he was Jewish, but he took money from Jews and gave it to the Romans. He was viewed as a traitor of God and Israel. But you know what? When Jesus met him, right behind the tax booth, he was out there sinning. And Jesus walked up to Matthew. He said, come follow me. And Matthew did. And it transformed everything about his life. I have a question. What will you do with the resurrected Christ? What will you do with him? Would you this morning be open to opening your heart to him? That maybe this morning it's your time, it's your opportunity to open your heart to Christ. He's way more than a historical figure. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's Jesus. God saves. And he is here and he is able to set us free. My question is simple. Would you be opening your heart to him? I know that some of us sitting here, your heart rate is going up and you're sensing there's something true, there's something right, there's something honest about the story that I've just heard and I need him. If that's where you're at, I'm going to lead us in a simple prayer. I want to encourage you that you would pray the prayer in faith to God through Christ. I'll lead you in it. But this prayer is for you to pray. For you to pray if you sense this is something God's calling you to do. A prayer would go something like this. The prayer would be something along the lines of Jesus. I don't know a lot about you. I don't know much about who you are. 
I know people that know you. I know people that follow you. But Lord, I'm here this morning and man, I'm looking at Easter. And Jesus, if it's true, and I believe it is, that you died on the cross. And in dying on the cross, you became sin for me. But Jesus, I also believe that on the third day you were raised to life. Jesus, because of that, I come with my own guilt, my own shame. And I bring it to you and I ask that you would forgive me, that you would cleanse me. Jesus, I make a choice in this moment to follow you. I don't know what it all means. I don't know what it all looks like. Jesus, I choose to follow you. Let's continue in an attitude of prayer. But if you prayed that prayer from your heart in faith, I'm going to encourage you in just a few moments. If you take out that news feed that we gave you when you came through the door, there's a tear-off section. If you would just put your name and your basic contact information and just check the box that says, I prayed to accept Christ. Maybe you followed Jesus at one point, but this morning you're committing your life back to him. Check that box as well. We want to partner with you in your newfound journey as a follower of Jesus. In just a few moments, going to have some announcements in a few moments we're going to have an opportunity where I'll come out and bless us all but what we're going to do now is we're going to stand together we're going to worship Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords let's stand together and worship Yeah. 